0: Good morning, if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, and uh, glad to see you guys back after Easter. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. In Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Do you pray with me? Our God, we rejoice with the words of the song that we just sang, that Jesus, our Savior, paid it all. There is nothing left that we need to pay for, no sin remaining that his death did not cover, that his resurrection did not defeat. And Father, we praise you that we have died with Christ if we believed in him, and we have risen again, and we need no longer be under the authority or the dominion of sin in our lives. God, Give us wisdom as we study your word to understand what it has to say. Father, we pray that you would give us the minds and hearts to believe, and we pray you empower us to obey, to do what your word says, so that we can be transformed more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was... uh, Younger, junior high, high school, I used to play tennis quite a bit. Some of you perhaps are tennis fans, and I was a guy that I was never great at it. I was just kind of mediocre, but I did play in some amateur tournaments. Never won a tournament, but enjoyed the competition, and uh, occasionally you would, if you were especially not seated in these tournaments, if you weren't ranked, you might get put up in the first round against a guy that was at the top, that had a state or national ranking, And so a few times this happened to me. I would show up and be ready to play, and I would get with some guy that was convinced he was going to go to Wimbledon next year, even though he was like 12. And uh, this happened to me several times. And this one particular tournament, I was ready to play, ready to go, and we began to play, and this kid was a clearly better player than I was. But uh, he was also extremely competitive as he played. And every time he lost a point, it would make him angry. He would scream or yell or throw his racket or curse at me or something along those lines or at himself. At one point, he lost an entire game. Now, keep in mind, a set is six games. I won like two. Uh, He lost one or two in a row and he began to cry. Uh, Now, after a while, this began to get under my skin a bit. I thought, you know, it's it's just a match. He's beating me badly. Uh, This isn't Wimbledon or anything like that. And, uh, After a while, what happened is he got so frustrated, I began to suspect that he was calling shots unfairly. In these amateur tournaments, you don't have a line judge always that stands right there. It's an honor system. You call the shots yourself. And I began to suspect that he was calling shots unfairly in his favor. And so one of the things that you can do is go get a line judge. So I went out to where the headquarters of this tournament was or whatever and I said, hold on just a second, I'll be right back. Came back with a line judge. Walked onto the court with the line judge, and something amazing happened. Soon as the line judge got there, this guy was suddenly a model of gentility and sportsmanship. He didn't throw a racket. He didn't say an unkind word. He didn't scream. He didn't cry. He was complimenting my shots, even after he would beat me. Nice shot. Way to go. Very good. right? And all of a sudden, he changed completely to the extent that uh, after a few minutes, the line judge said, there's really no problem here, and left. All right, at which point he began to ramp back up a little bit. And as I thought about that tournament in later uh, days and in later years, it made me realize something. The presence of the law was what kept this guy in line. Without the law keeper there, without the threat of consequences being removed from the tournament, forfeiting the match, without that threat, this guy was not going to behave. All right? it's, it's a basic principle of human nature that when we are under the threat of punishment, or consequences, we tend to behave better than we would otherwise. Many of you have noticed that when you're on the road, uh, something happens when there's a police car driving in front of you, right? I've often wondered if police officers uh, deliberately go 30 miles under the speed limit just to see if everybody will stay behind them. right? I would if I were a policeman, right? I would go, I'll just go five, see how many people will line up behind me, right? Because when we're under the threat of consequence, we tend to behave. It's our nature. Now, this poses a problem when we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And the reason is because the gospel proclaims loudly and boldly that we are given eternal life freely. We need not work for it. But it is in the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection that we have eternal life. We talked about that two weeks ago, if you were here, that the gospel proclaims that the gift of eternal life is absolutely free. Now, the danger, of course, in preaching the grace of God in Jesus Christ is that some might choose to uh, abuse it. Some might choose to say, well, if I'm going to receive eternal life anyway, then why not, as it says up here, live like hell and still go to heaven? Why would I bother to obey God? This is a problem that, believe it or not, the Christian church has faced since its inception. Uh, the first uh, major area in which they faced this issue was, what do we do with those men and women who, under the threat of persecution, deny Jesus Christ, like Peter? But the problem continued into the early church. What do we do with those men and women who deny Jesus Christ? What do we do with those men men and women who say that they believe in Jesus Christ, but the evidence of their life does not back it up? How do we handle that? And there's been a few ways that Christians have answered that. One way has been to say, well, Jesus gives salvation freely, but if you disobey, you can lose it. God will take it away. But throughout the history, particularly of the Protestant Reformation, most have agreed that it seems that the Scripture argues convincingly that eternal life is a free gift that cannot be taken away. Two chapters over, if you want to flip to Romans 8 really quickly. Starting in verse 30, Paul writes this just on the heels of explaining the gift of eternal life. And the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says this, verse 30. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. All right, so there's this, this, uh, it's been called a golden chain. It's just this process of salvation that if God called you and justified you, he will complete the process. And then he goes on to say, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, did you leave anything out, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul convincingly argues, if you are chosen, if you are called in Jesus Christ, if you are one of his, nothing, nothing, nothing will separate you from him. There can be no charge brought against you. So uh, another way that the church has tried to answer this problem of holiness in the Christian life is to say, well, we're going to insist upon holiness then up front. Not only do you believe in Jesus Christ, but you have to commit up front, I will do better, I will work harder, I will try my best, right? And we talked about that two weeks ago, we ultimately concluded that no, the gospel is a free gift given by grace through faith alone. It is faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in me that provides me eternal life. So the third way that the church has attempted to answer this problem is by saying this. Well, Jesus gives salvation for free, and yes, it is faith in Jesus alone. But the way that we know whether you're saved is your works. God gives it for free. God keeps you. And those who he keeps, those who he has chosen, they would say, yes, they are elect forever and ever, and God will never take it away. But if your works don't line up, then you need to go back and question, am I really saved? In fact, it's, it's a doctrine uh, that comes really from the Protestant Reformation and from uh, the Reformers, and it weaves its way, especially through the English Reformation of the 16th century and into the Puritan doctrines that really uh, undergirded much of the theology of this country. And if you go back and read Puritan writings, you will read of men and women who on their deathbed struggled with this question still of, am I saved or am I not? Am I good enough? Am I not? Do my works bear out that God has saved me? And so the evidence of my life becomes the primary testimony of whether or not I am saved. I wonder if you, like me, ever doubt your salvation. I wonder if you ever lie awake at night at times wondering, uh, is this really true? But not only that, if it is true, uh, am I really saved? Do I really have eternal life? And when you have those doubts, where do you go to reassure yourself? Do you reassure yourself primarily by your works, by looking at what is it that I have done or not done? And if so, uh, how do you know if you've done enough? Is it based upon whether I'm better than the person sitting next to me? Is it based upon uh, whether I've tried my best? Well, how do I know if I've tried my best? Are there certain sins that I can say, well, I'm not a murderer, I'm not an adulterer, so I'm, I'm doing pretty good? To what extent can I know, based upon my works, what what is my spiritual state, whether I will receive eternal life or not? What is the basis of your assurance? And there are those who would say, well, uh, consistent sin, habitual sin is clearly evidence that you're not a Christian. How many of us consistently and habitually sin? You don't actually have to raise your hand, right? Nor do you have to tell us what they are. But I would say that most of us would say, yeah. I struggle with sins that just seem to continually trouble me and pull me down. How do I know? Well, we're going to look at that for a few minutes from the New Testament. What is the basis of assurance? And not only that, but what does the New Testament say about works, the relationship of works to the Christian life? And what I'm going to argue is this, that works are a critical and necessary part of the Christian life, but I don't think they were ever intended to bear the weight of assurance of our salvation. I don't think we were ever intended to look back at what we do and say, based upon what I do, I can say I'm saved, based upon comparing myself, yeah, I look pretty good, or I don't look good compared to these people, I can determine whether I'm saved or not. Instead, I think we're intended primarily to look for assurance of salvation to the finished work of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died and rose again so that I can have eternal life. We're going to argue, yes, a life of holiness is normative and expected and natural for a believer, but in some cases, for different reasons, that process might short circuit. And there are biblical illustrations. So let's dive into the scripture and we'll get as far as we can here. All right, the question I want to start with is this Why should Christians pursue good works? If I have eternal life, why should I bother to pursue good works? And we're going to see several reasons from the Bible. All right, the first one is simply this. They are the appropriate response to the free gift of eternal life. Living as Jesus Christ has called me to live is the appropriate response to the free gift of eternal life. Romans 6 that we just read, Paul poses this question. He's just said, look, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and God lavishes on us his grace when we sin. And so the question is, well, why shouldn't I keep on sinning? And Paul's answer, interestingly, is not so that you can prove you're saved. Paul's answer is very simple. You died to that. If you have identified yourself with Jesus Christ, then literally you laid down in the grave with him when he died, and when he rose again, you got back up out of the grave. And so if you are dead, you are no longer enslaved to the old master. All right? If I die, the government, the laws of this land have no more authority over me. I'm dead. I'm not under their authority. Paul says, not only did you die, you rose again into a new realm. And that is the realm of God, ruled by Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit, where now you have the opportunity to do what you could not do before, which is please God with your life. So why would you crawl back in the grave? You died to that. And the appropriate response to the free gift of eternal life is to do and be who Jesus has called us to be, to reflect Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is God's purpose for us that we walk in good works. And this is following Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that we emphasized a lot a couple of weeks ago. The free gift of eternal life is given, but we are intended to walk in the way that God wants us to walk so that we reflect Jesus Christ. James 2 Famous passage says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, I wish I had time to do a full, detailed exposition of James 2. If you would like one, you can find one on our website, our senior pastor, Brian. Fisher just did one last semester, but in a nutshell, when we look at James 2, people have wrestled with this passage because they've said it seems like at face value it's saying you need works plus your faith in order to be saved. And in fact, I would argue that is exactly what it is saying, except uh, when we see the word saved in the New Testament, it has a variety of contexts, and you always have to ask the question, save from what? Save for what? Sometimes this word, this Greek word saved, is used literally for physical salvation. Someone's drowning and they say, save me. Right? They don't mean take me to heaven. They don't want that. They don't want to die. They want to be pulled out of the water. Sometimes it means physical healing. Sometimes it means the fullness and the completion of your salvation, meaning not just eternal life, but also you walk in works. Here in this context, as you read the context, it's clear James is saying, save me from what? Save me from a faith that ultimately is useless, that doesn't bear the fruit that God intends for it to bear. Useless to whom? Useless to this guy, this brother or sister who says, I need help. And you say, hey, go in peace. Good luck. The proper response to eternal life is to walk as God has called us to walk. Look at it this way. Mother's Day is in a few weeks, right? Most of you are probably, did you know that? You should know that. Yeah, okay. I saw a couple people go, what? Okay. It's coming up, right? Most of you are going to do something for your mom. You're going to buy her a card. You're going to take her to lunch. You're going to give her a gift. You're going to tell her how much you appreciate her. Why? Because even if she's done nothing else for you in your life, she carried you inside of her body for nine months. And then she went through agonizing pain to deliver you into this world. Maybe she reminds you of that from time to time. If your grades are getting low, or if you say something to her that she does not like, even if she's done nothing else for you, and so you say, out of appreciation for her, out of love for her, the appropriate response is what? Gratitude, respect, submission. Now, it may be that at times, uh, you frustrate her, you make her crazy. It may be at times, uh, as you were a teenager, you rebelled against her authority, and maybe even right now, there's a strange relationship between you and mom, but mom can't put you back, right? Mom can't take you back to the baby store. She can't snap her fingers and go, you're gone, and you poof, you're gone, right? Nonetheless, to demonstrate ingratitude and disobedience to her is completely at odds with the gift she's given. The gift of life to demonstrate ingratitude and disobedience to God is completely at odds with what he has called you for. It is the appropriate response to eternal life, the free gift to say, I want now to reflect the glories and the love and the mercy of the God who saved me. Doesn't necessarily mean it will inevitably happen, but it is the appropriate response. So biblically, we pursue good works because they are the appropriate response. Secondly, because our very purpose in this life is to glorify God. Matthew 5, 16, just one of many verses. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. To give glory to God simply means you make his name renowned, famous, well-known, weighty, heavy. And so we stand as a testimony of God's grace to show to the world the glory and the mercy of God. That is our purpose, to disobey God violates the very purpose for which we're made. So yeah, you can do it. You can choose to disobey God, run down your own path, but you're violating your purpose and you will never fulfill your purpose. I have an Aggie ring that sits on my finger now. I've told you guys some stories about it in the past. I lost it for a number of years. It found its way back to me through a generous Aggie, or actually not an Aggie, just a generous lady who found it in the dirt in a parking lot, sent it back to me. And now I wear it again with pride because it reflects... Texas A&M, but imagine you came over to my house, you walk in my living room and you see the ring tied to a little piece of yarn lying on the living room floor, and you say, why is your ring there with a string on it? And I go, well, I noticed that the ring made a really good cat toy, right? And so when the cat comes in the room, I take the string and I take the ring and I do this and the cat goes after it and it's great, it's shiny and it's fun, and you go, no, right? That's not what it's for. Well, yeah, I know that's not what it's for, but it works really well for that. You say, but, but it's not what it's for. It's supposed to go on your hand. It's supposed to demonstrate the glory and the majesty and the wonder of Aggieland, right? <laughs> that's what it's for. And yeah, it may work as a cat toy, but that's, it's never going to fulfill its purpose that way. You can use your body and your mind and your heart for violence and immorality, and destructive things. And that's the second half of Romans 6, in fact, but the reality is you will never fulfill the purpose for which God made you, which is to be a testimony to his glory. You've been made for a purpose, and it is to glorify God. Our life's purpose is to glorify God. Thirdly, we receive reward for persevering. 2 Timothy chapter 4 Verses 7 through 8. Paul says this I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 10, as well, talks about how we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will be rewarded based upon whether we've done something good, done something bad. As Christians, uh, we will be rewarded for persevering. And Paul does not stray away from saying that those who persevere in works will receive crowns and rewards, and those crowns and those rewards will ultimately be used to, you know, do what? Throw them at the feet of Jesus Christ, that's Revelation 9, and worship Jesus more and more and more for eternity. And so does that make us mercenaries then? I serve just so I can get a crown. don't think so the reason is because the reward itself is found in worshiping my savior more and more and more the reward itself uh, as we see in some of jesus parables may be that i get the opportunity to reign with him and to represent him to a greater degree in his kingdom and so the reward itself follows naturally from my passion and drive in life to glorify him think about it this way gentlemen Perhaps today, perhaps someday in the recent past or in the near future, you spot a young lady and you fall in love with her and you decide, I'm going to marry this woman. I want to pursue a relationship with this woman. I want our lives to be intertwined and you want to marry her and you hope that when you marry her, she will make love to you, right? That's your hope. It's just in the back of your head. Maybe you don't talk about it a whole lot. But it's there. Let me ask you a question. Does that make you a mercenary? Does that make you a person that says, uh, now, you know, really, I I just, that's all I want. Now, if you were that person, that'd be a problem. But if in the course of this relationship of love and joy and marriage, you say, I want to consummate that relationship through a sexual relationship with my wife, that's the normal and natural and expected response of those who, fall in love, and get married. It's even called for in the Scripture. We can look at other passages later if you're interested in those. But it's called for in the Scripture. So do you call somebody a mercenary because they say, this is what I want in my marriage relationship? No. It's the normal and natural and expected reward of two lives coming together. Now, if you married her for your money, if you married her solely for this reason, then we'd say there's a problem but to expect reward as the natural consequence of something great. No, it's not wrong. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desire not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We must not be troubled by the unbelievers when they say this promise of rewards makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of rewards. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desire that ought to accompany those things. Money is not the natural reward of love. That's why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover and he is not a mercenary for desiring it. A general who fights well in order to get a peerage that is a promotion is a mercenary. A general who fights for victory is not. Victory being the proper reward of battle as marriage is the proper reward of love. The proper rewards are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they are given but are the activity itself in consummation. When I pursue Jesus Christ and the scripture promises reward to those who do, I recognize that that reward comes as the natural consummation of following Jesus Christ. And the scripture is absolutely unhesitant in promising it to those who persevere. Not only are there rewards for persevering, there's also discipline and punishment for disobedience. Discipline and punishment for disobedience. A couple of passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, writing to a very troubled church, Paul writes, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that His spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So this man undergoes some kind of uh, distance, uh, perhaps a a separation from the church, and perhaps a physical punishment. Why? So that his spirit may be saved to bring him to a place of sorrow. There's discipline. 1 Corinthians 11, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. All right, uh, the discipline that's going on here is these men and women are using the Lord's Supper as their own personal gluttonous feast. And Paul says, God is judging you. He's not judging you by taking away your salvation. What is he doing? He's judging you by putting some of you to death. He's judging you by making some of you sick he says, you'd best heed the discipline of the Lord. There is discipline and judgment even on believers. It doesn't entail losing their salvation, but might entail loss of fellowship with other believers, loss of fellowship with God, uh, physical illness, and even death for those who disobey. This is why I think Peter can say in 2 Peter that for those who have known Jesus Christ and then they walk away, he says the last state is worse than the first. And I think what he means is that there is a special misery for those who know Jesus Christ but then choose to disobey because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart, because of the discipline that God will place upon that person's life. So clearly, as we see from Scripture, there are all kinds of exhortations toward living a holy life, all kinds of reasons toward living a holy life. And yet, yet, we do see in Scripture that there are places where the process seems to break down. Are there Christians in the Scripture who seemingly fail to persevere well, fail to do well, fail to live their life fully and completely and increasingly for the glory of God? And the answer to that, if you read the Word of God, would have to be yes, there are genuine Christians who seem to fail. Let me give you a few passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So you have a discussion of a person, they build with nothing valuable. Paul says, yeah, he'll be saved, but as through fire. Watch everything in your life go poof. That's a judgment. And yet he says, he himself will be saved. But the judgment seat of Christ will be an unpleasant moment. You see all the work of your life burn up. 1 Timothy 1, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. seems to indicate men that at one point had faith, their faith, and yet they've made a shipwreck of it. And it says very, very distinctly here, the way they've done that is they've rejected, they've turned away, they've repudiated what they once held dear. Paul says they're going to undergo judgment. If you look at the Old Testament, you see men like Solomon First Kings 11, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. He's crazy. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And do we want to argue that Solomon, we won't see him in heaven? Be careful. He wrote two, probably three books of our Bible. Do we want to argue that we won't see him in heaven? I don't know that there are any that would. Do we want to argue that the man on whom God bestowed this supernatural spiritual wisdom because of his trust in him. We won't see him in heaven. No. Solomon was a man that I believe we'll see one day if we believe in Jesus, but he's a man who failed badly at the end of his life. David, man who committed murder and adultery. Moses, man who disobeyed God to the extent that he was not able to enter into the promised land. And yet these are upheld as heroes of the faith when we get to Hebrews 11. So yes, it seems that there are men and women who genuinely trust God, genuinely trust Jesus Christ, but fail, and fail badly, and fail for a long time. Think about it this way. What's the Aggie honor code? An Aggie does not what? Lie, cheat, steal, tolerate those who do. You ever done any of those things? You ever lied? Nobody? Nobody? Okay. So the whole group is lying to me right now. All right? You ever lied? You ever cheated on anything? You ever stolen anything? Certainly you've tolerated those who've done it, right? I've done it. You haven't stoned me or kicked me out yet, right? You're tolerating me. Are you an Aggie? Careful how you answer. So what's the point of the honor code? I'm not going to take away your Aggie card if you ever told a lie. What does it mean? means that it's completely inconsistent with the character of an Aggie. When you do those things, you're not acting like an Aggie. You're not living as an Aggie. But you know what? I still have the diploma on my wall, even though I failed. Scripture says, yeah, when you disobey God, you're living out of sync with the character of God. You're dishonoring God. You're not fulfilling your purpose But the basis of our assurance of salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. So I have a person come to me and they're struggling in a particular area and they're sinning and there's some bad, deep sin in their life. I will tell you, the first thing I'm going to ask them is, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? What have you trusted in? They tell me, I've trusted in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And I believe in that. And from there, I'm going to assume this is an individual who is a believer in Jesus Christ, but something's gone wrong. So now we begin to talk about the consequences for disobedience. We begin to talk about the problems that they're going to face. We begin to talk about the rewards for obedience, the fulfilling of their purpose. And I treat this person as a believer in Jesus Christ who needs exhortation and maybe discipline. But I would encourage you as you interact with men and women and as you interact with yourself to know whether or not I am saved. And we're going to see a passage in a minute. The scripture continually takes us back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you have the son, you have life. You don't have the son. You don't have life. All right. Scripture is very clear. So why does this matter? Why does this make a difference quickly as we finish up? First reason I think it matters is this. Growth comes from security. Growth comes from security. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is dealing with a group of people that seem stuck. They seem stuck in the basics of the Christian faith. He says, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, laying on of hands the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. That's Hebrews 5, 11 to 6, 2. I think what the author is getting at is move on to maturity. And I fear the danger if I continue to tell people, look to your works to determine if you're saved rather than to the finished work of Jesus Christ, is it creates an instability that keeps me centered only on this question of am I in or am I out? And what the gospel of Jesus Christ ultimately calls us to do is to move on to maturity and to walk with God. And I think the best growth comes from security. Think about a marriage to the best Married couples, the best lovers in marriage you know, are they undergirded by a foundation of saying, if you do not do the dishes, I'm out of here. Does that create security? Or does that create instability and fear? Growth comes from security, from unconditional love, which is what Jesus Christ has offered us. And security comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ. 1 John 5. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Security comes from the finished work of Jesus Christ. The reason that I am here in ministry, the reason that I decided to pursue this as a vocation is because I have a passion to see men and women grow spiritually, to walk with God, to really embrace the purpose that God has set out for your life, which is to glorify him and to reflect Jesus Christ. I pray all the time that an army of young men and women from this campus and from this community will go forth into the world and proclaim the excellencies of the mercies of Jesus Christ who called you from darkness into light. And I also passionately believe that the best foundation for that is laid in trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. So can a Christian sin disobey God and still receive eternal life? Yes, but it's tragic. Because you reap consequences and discipline and you miss the very reason God has placed you on this earth. And ultimately, the reason God has placed us here is daily Moment by moment, we reflect Jesus Christ, and to everyone we know, we go back and we say, do you know what Jesus did? Do you know what Jesus did? He entered into history. God became man. He died for me. He rose again. Maybe you're here and you haven't ever believed that. You can have eternal life by trusting in Jesus Christ. If not, this this is the day trust in Jesus Christ, receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you have, I challenge you and exhort you to go back to the finished work of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his goodness, his grace, rather than my own works or those of someone else. Would you guys pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Lord, we we love it, and we love it because it testifies of you and of your son, Jesus Christ, and we love him because he died for us. For our sins, while we were still sinners, died for us, and he rose again to demonstrate that we have eternal life if we believe in him. And Father, let us rest our assurance on what he has done rather than what we do. And yet, Father, let us glorify God with our lives, knowing that that's the purpose for which you've made us. Lord, we love you We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all next week.